Now, there are all kinds of ideas that would be fun to believe in. Mental telepathy, time travel, immortality. Now, I know it's no fun to go home and say, guess what happened today? I was in the shopping center. There was this tremendously bright light, and I rushed outside, and it was an airplane. Excuse me, sir. Uh, I didn't want to see this. I sure wish I had. You know, for 15 years, I've been looking for these damn silly lights in the night sky. I've never found any. I'd like to, because I believe in life elsewhere. I saw Bigfoot once. Made a sound I would not want to hear twice in my life. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the IMMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and we've watched another movie. Ah, uh, we, we have experienced a movie. This is, this is one of those things that I kind of knew was coming. And we went back to the, the late 70s this time. I think the last 70s movie we watched was just a couple of episodes with the uh, Colossus, the Forbin Project from 1970. Uh, and But uh, apart from that, it's been 80s for a bit. Yeah. But we're back in the 70s now, 1977 specifically, a famous uh, science fiction movie, not a famous science fantasy movie from somewhat earlier in 1977, but I'm sure we'll get around yeah, to that yeah, eventually. It's, it's not the one everyone expects in some ways, but also, you know, title of the episode here, you know what's coming. <laughs> Because the entire point of this movie is about something's coming, and that's really fun. <laughs> we are talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Dun, 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 dun. Yes, it's the thing. <laughs> it's the thing. Also, uh, I believe this is the first Steven Spielberg movie. I think it is. That we have uh, done on the podcast. You know, it's not... The only thing we've watched for the podcast, or the first thing we've watched for the podcast, directed by Steven Spielberg, because he directed at least one, if not more, episodes of Columbo. Oh, you're right. Back when he, he was did. kind of um, uh, developing his chops in television. But I mean, talk about one of those. Talk about one of those names that has had impact over time, because Spielberg definitely has an eye for a tone that goes beyond just a single film, I think. He has this... Like, he, he has a way to, dis, to portray a, a sense of wonder, which is important to a film like this. And this is one of the few that I don't think always feels happy about that in some ways. There's a lot of times, especially later things of his that seem to be like the sense of wonder is a joyous thing. And there's a bit, there's parts of this where that sense of wonder is intentionally terrifying in a way that almost doesn't feel Spielberg to me at times, but I think it's brilliant. He definitely was, I think thought of as much as a, um, a horror and thriller director as, as anything at this time. This was his third feature film, I think. The first, his first um, non-made-for-TV feature was The Sugarland Express, which I've seen, and it's essentially a TV movie. I think it was released theatrically, but it's kind of a TV movie level of production. And 
But then his his huge breakout in 1975 was Jaws. Yeah, I'm looking at his stuff and uh, on IMDb here, and yeah, there's a lot of stuff that is made by him that is not light and happy, but it's it's weird. His interpretation for my generation had a he had a a backlog of these more fun family movies. So it kind of colored that. I didn't get to see his career build like that, and that changed it. it definitely. Seeing this, knowing that this is the guy who directed Jaws, I think that was one of the seasonings that went into this movie and its original impact, because this is the guy who directed that movie about the scary monster threatening a town. It makes the first half of this movie, or more, wonderfully threatening and ambiguous. Yeah. There's, yeah, this... <sighs> marketing aside, there's no reason to believe at the beginning of this movie that this is not something scary and dangerous, and we're all in trouble. I'm trying to remember the first moment of this movie, and my mind keeps jumping to things I know are later scenes. Because this isn't, this isn't one of those there's too many movies in this movie scenarios. This is one of those brilliant vignettes that could be a thing all on their own, but are actually part of this cohesive whole. So it's hard to place that opening scene for me. It's definitely one of those movies that starts out with two threads that later converge. And the the opening scene in this movie is in the Sonoran Desert. Oh, it's the desert scene. And this team converging on this location where there's something important that where a whole bunch of people need to come and investigate things. And it turns out to be a bunch of military aircraft that went missing in 1945. That could be an entire movie all on its own. But that, that I think I always think that that's later because I'm mixing it up with the boat, but like that, those scenes feel perfectly set on their own. And then other scenes feel set. It's a, it's a bit Lego-like in that sense. As long as all the pieces are there before the ending, the order is a little flexible in my head. So this is, as I'm sure everybody knows, and of course there'll be spoilers as usual for a movie, it's, it's a movie about first formal contact with aliens from another world. But it starts out with all of this Bermuda Triangle kind of stuff, where they're finding things that went missing decades past. A, a ship, this bunch of airplanes. Um, other, and in addition to those, these other contacts around the world that people have reported with strange lights in the sky and these strange uh, sounds being repeated. And being repeated, uh, that's the thing. We are introduced to the aliens as a character really early because they are the tones. The tones are the aliens because when those are in the room, they're focused that same way. This five tone note set is not only an item of presence throughout the entire first part of the movie, it's also in the score to back up certain moments and it pops up in other places. And it's, it's always there when aliens are here. And so it's kind of them 
first. That's the first way they they are in any scene is this in that sense. And that's a great point Yeah, you dropped in there is needing to acknowledge the score for this movie early on because the plot does rely on this diegetic sound, this music. And it is worked into the score very adeptly. And this is, of course, John Williams, the same guy who did the score for Jaws for Steven Spielberg, and the same guy who scored, I believe, every single Steven Spielberg movie uh, since, really working that in very well. And I don't know, I'm trying to think of other examples where there was in-story sound, diegetic sound that became part of a John Williams score. There's none that come to mind. Not really. But it worked very well here. A couple of times it distracted me because it kind of, I noticed it, but that may just be the fact that I've seen this movie so many times, I'm alert for that kind of thing. I don't remember it distracting me when I first saw this, but then I first saw this in the movie theater when I was 12, and I was just blown away by the whole thing. Oh, goodness. I can just imagine, like, how this would affect you then. I saw, you showed it to me later. I think you showed this to me around like 16. That's probably about right. Yeah, because it it was around when it got easier to get things on DVD. This was one of those, oh, we finally have this, like it, a good copy of this somewhere we can show him. And I got to see this. And I remember being confused in a good way. Oh, that's a, that's a good response to most movies, I think. Some of my favorite movies are ones that left me confused in a good way. And I don't know, I, I also remember you c- talking about which cut this was at the time, but that's a whole separate issue. Yeah, that that is a different issue. I think we we first watched whatever we could find at the library in their DVD oh, collection. Oh, that sounds right. But for this podcast, we did find a copy of the 30th anniversary box set, which contains all three cuts of the movie. The theatrical cut, the special edition, which was released to theaters like a year or so later, and then the director's cut. And of the three, I mean, I have a soft spot for the theatrical cut. That was the first one that I I saw. I don't care for the quote-unquote special edition, and I don't, from what I've read, I don't think Spielberg does either. I think it was mostly uh, a marketing um, fabrication. The director's cut kind of splits the difference. I still think I probably prefer the original theatrical cut to the director's cut, but we watched the director's cut this time around, and it was good. I, I have no complaints about it, but I'm going to want to compare those two to see which I really do like better. I'm not against that at all. But this movie's structure is can be, more so than other stories, it can be affected by that. Because being this story of these smaller encounters that are building up to the climax, you can switch them around a little like I was describing, but how much impact each of those have is important. And the score is there pulling them all together. It's threading this musical tone throughout, which pops up in its ways in all those little little scenes. It's getting you to be as building tension and like, why is this tone in my head? even when I'm not hearing it in what I thought I heard it, but it's getting in your mind now. And you kind of follow along with the characters to the climax in that sense. So how long each of those stretch out can be a little bit different. And 
this is also kind of a lead into talking about those different segments because there's there's really I guess three distinct narratives kind of there's the military side and then there's our two specific examples of interactions. Oh, that's interesting. I I guess I tend to break them down into two. There's the the official investigation and then there's the civilian contactees. And we talked a bit about the civilian the the official investigation where who which first encounter these airplanes in the the Sonoran Desert and then a like a missing a ship that shows up in in uh, Mongolia, and there sh- there these things are reappearing far from where they disappeared, and and then a, a an encounter in in, uh, in India that seems to be interpreted as a, a spiritual encounter, a religious experience. <laughs> But then we've got these, I would say, these two people and their families in Indiana. A single mom, a mom and her her little toddler, and uh, Roy Neary, played by Richard Dreyfus, of course, starred in Jaws, as a like works for the local uh, power company again in Indiana, and they each have these encounters and. We and they represent a much bigger group of people who are having these strange direct encounters. Dreyfus's character really gets a like the first most severe encounter with his his road incidents, which was very well shot bits of. I I forget what he does. He's like a he's like a lineman for the um uh the local power company. Yeah. So there's these this weird freak electrical storm, and of course he has to go out and and fix um power lines. But I don't think it's weather that's causing the power problems. No, it's it's the thing with lights that decides to go around his car by going above it instead of to the side and. That's a very fun moment. Great little examples of Steven Spielberg playing the, the 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 classic game and playing it well of of setup and payoff. It sets it up with he's lost. He keeps stopping in the middle of the road to look at his maps. Car pulls up behind him. You see the lights, and he waves it past, and it goes around. Next time that happens, you see the lights pull up behind him. He waves them through, and they don't go around. They go over. Yeah, it's just like. <laughs> Uh, and of course, there's this nice long pause for the audience to respond before the character realizes. Yeah, that's one of the few things that we see far before uh, before he does. But that leads into our car chase scene with three UFOs, the entire police force, and him. And it also, and in between there is the uh, the first of the big light shows where there are you know, lights being shined down from something up above and telephone poles and mailboxes and all kinds of things shaking and, and gravity seeming to go haywire inside the cab of his truck and all of these these things that that turn this into a close encounter of the third kind. Mm. That's a thing, like the name of this movie, we've discussed, we're getting into this, but the name of this movie itself is an interesting point of reference that I don't I don't remember if it ever gets explained specifically in the film itself if they ever explain the third kind aspect. Yeah, I don't think they they do um ever explain the title. 
in this movie. But uh, it's from J. Allen Hynek, who is an astrophysicist who worked on uh, Project Blue Book. Hey, callback. That's right. Yeah, we we already watched TV's response to this movie, which was uh, Project UFO. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was an early uh, early episode for the podcast. So it's interesting to come back to this now. But uh, but Hynek created this scale of how to kind of grade or think about UFO encounters. Um, there's, you know, the first kind, which is sighting. I think the second kind is physical evidence. The third kind is actual contact. Yeah. So we get, we get instances of some first kind light show. We get some second kind objects appearing and UFOs zipping through town and causing gravitational and electromagnetic disturbance. And this is all the buildup to the third kind encounter that is the the end of the film and uh as long as we're mentioning Heineck, yes i want to skip ahead to one of the last scenes in the movie Heineck gets a cameo in this movie <gasps> Heineck is in the film yes at, i don't know if you noticed it in the end where we've got the you know, the throngs of people during the final like encounter with these aliens in the the makeshift um military base all of a sudden, everything kind of stops, and we follow this guy, this dapper-looking guy with you know, white hair and a Van Dyke beard, sort of pushed through the crowd and be looking up in, in yes. wonder. That's Heineck. He visited oh. the set, and he got a cameo in the movie. Oh, that is brilliant. <laughs> that is absolutely brilliant. So we have one real kind of well-known UFO researcher, very big in, in uh, 20th century ufology. And who kind of started with Project Blue Book. A lot of people look to what he did there as essentially he was the, the science guy hired to rubber stamp the whatever explanation the Air Force decided they should should uh, offer. Oh. And I don't know that that's entirely fair about Heineck. And I think he be, did become more interested in the bigger picture later on. But also, we've got kind of a representation of Jacques Vallée. Oh. Another, and I don't know that I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, another big uh, UFO researcher. He is not actually in this movie, but Francois Truffaut's character, the French ufologist, who's kind of leading the non-military side of the official investigation. Yeah. Very much based on Jacques Vallée. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I'd say that Roy Neary, Richard Dreyfuss' character, is sort of the audience surrogate the person we're following and learning things through on the civilian contactee side of this movie, Claude Lancome, Truffaut's character, and Bob Balaban, who plays the cartographer who's sort of roped into service as Lancome's uh, a French-English translator. Those are kind of our surrogates in the official investigation. That makes a lot of sense. And we follow these two different threads until they eventually do converge. Our civilians get very different interactions because while the scientists are tr- are chasing the aliens v- via these previous things that have already happened, our civilians have things happen to them and can have after effects of that. And that's interesting because after the car chase with its dramatic ending at a a steep turn on a cliff and he, uh, our main character 
there, I, I I don't like calling him the main character, weirdly enough, but he starts slipping a little. We see him, like, trying to go about his day and just ignore this, and things keep catching his eye, and he keeps kind of zoning out. And we watch this grow as it goes from getting really distracted by his shaving cream to this compulsion to make something and to figure this out, because something has gotten in his head. And it's interesting, we, we've got these two contactees. We've got Roy Neary, who has encountered something that hasn't affected him in a, a demonstrable way, with the exception of a weird half-and-half half sunburn he got from whatever kind of you know, lights or radiation this thing had. And yet he's got the classic alien contactee experience, where he's suddenly overwhelmed with a need to figure out what this means. It's not that he has to get something back. It's not that he has to fix something that's broken. He just knows that the most important thing that's happened to him has just happened, and he doesn't know what it was or what it means. Meanwhile, Melinda Dillon's character of uh, Jillian Geiler has a very traumatic and not good experience here and gives her a completely different motivation for why she goes through this. Oh, absolutely. Because hers is the harsh lights through the windows, shaking the house, ripping the place almost apart until it steals her kid. And coming into this movie in in the 70s where we've got, you know, we talked about, you know, when Satan was fun about movies, <laughs> but we're coming in the same decade as movies like The Exorcist. And this is from a director whose last thing was Jaws. There is like all bets are off as to what this scene means and how much is at stake. And it's it's a horrifying scene. Oh, it's yeah. It really is demonic. Like everything, all, all the lights and every electronic device in the house going crazy and these lights and smoke and everything surrounding the house and like trying every possible means of ingress to get into the house where they are. They are. It's a horrifying scene. Terrifying. It is terrifying. That that scene on its own of her encounter is a, a perfect horror short film just in the middle of this movie. And it it really throws everything you start to feel about this these aliens into question because you can't trust if this is good anymore after that moment. And we get with those three different little perspectives, we get a very fun of a uh, like, what is going on here from the scientists? Why have you talked to me from uh, one of our encounters? And who do you think you are taking my kid from <laughs> yes. our third? And that, three motivating questions of very different style all converge and that's fun and interesting in that sense and it's interesting and in some ways sad to contrast the, the kind of the home life that we see disrupted in these two civilian characters we've got guyler who is you know, raising her toddler uh on her own apparently and you know this is her whole world and it's torn away from her and her motivation as you say is to get get her child back. Meanwhile, the Neary family just seems like incomprehensibly dysfunctional and yet not in a self-aware, like we're supposed to understand this is a family with problems. I think it's more of a, 
the young Steven Spielberg has no idea what an actual family is like. Yeah, there is. And this is, uh, it's just bizarre and ridiculous. It's like, I have so much trouble sympathizing or connecting with Neary because he's obviously utterly incompetent as a parent, not great at his job, not great as a husband. Why am I following him? Is the fact that he was randomly lit up by a UFO supposed to be enough for me to care about him? That's the weird part, and that's probably the biggest detriment to this entire film. Our humans are too alien to actual human behavior at times to completely pull you in. (laughs) It's like, this is aliens encountering aliens, because that ain't right. And that's something where... It unsettled me when I first saw this when I was was a kid, when I was 12 years old. I understood why better when I saw this when I was older, and I understand it even more now, I think now, uh, you know, um, as a grown husband and father myself. It's like, what? why am I supposed to care about this guy? Dude, fix your own stuff, <laughs> then hunt aliens. Yeah. Um. And then there's the fact that at the end of the movie, again, spoilers as always, uh, he winds up going off in a spaceship. Yeah, he just leaving leads. his family behind. Um, that's yeah, ins- that's not something that you put do. a pin in okay, that. Yeah, my goodness. And and I kept I was thinking on this watch, do they portray his family as like so horrible and messed up, so that? we feel better about the fact that he abandons them to go into outer space or what? I mean, I don't, uh, that's, that's the most troubling part of the movie to me. Yeah. It's really weird. Um, but I, we get to talk about one of the, the best bits, I think. And the part we've got a lot to talk about now. Yeah. Because we've gotten the setup of the three different groups and their interactions. We've got this, Horrific setting. Actually, we haven't talked about how absolutely bad Neri is at figuring out where he's supposed to go. Because, oh. <laughs> yeah, he has this compulsion. He keeps trying to make something. He keeps trying to sculpt this mountain and carving the sides so it's got this very ridged exterior, but it's not right. Something's wrong. And he keeps trying to build it bigger to maybe fix whatever this problem is until he's literally destroying his and his neighbor's property in a terrifying self-destructive spiral, which feels metaphorical to some other issues than just what it is. But, and that's something I think is the extend that whole sequence, make it longer compared to the original theatrical cut, which might be one of the reasons why I like that original cut better. But finally he, but we watch we watch multiple times as the answer is revealed to us and he misses it just to build up that setup. And it's actually really frustrating because this is that moment of the movie that starts playing the sitcom problem for me. And I like cringe into my <laughs> chair just a little watching Close Encounters because it's right there. Look at the TV. Don't look away. Stop that. He always just happens to be looking away when the thing he needs to know is in the other direction. And then he turns back as soon as it leaves the screen. And only when he then tries to finally give up and remove the thing, does he accidentally slice the top off his model and complete it. <laughs> because 
Drum roll, please. It's Devil's Tower. Devil's Tower, a national monument in Wyoming. A very distinctive uh, landform. Absolutely. And if, if you saw our our post about it, we went and checked it out. <laughs> yeah, it's not too far from here. And it's uh, a, lot of, a lot of fun hiking around there. A lot of fun it's hiking around there. It's an impressive thing to see. It is really amazing. It is way taller than it looks in the film, even. It is... T- it 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 is it is alien feeling in the way it just juts from the environment in that sense, and it's amazing for that. I understand that in the original screenplay for this, they needed some kind of feature to focus all this on, and then went scouting and hit upon Devil's Tower, and a good choice. I mean, there's other places you could have made this, but Devil's Tower was a great choice. Absolutely. They show Devil's Tower at the time as this very, very sparse area around it and not a lot. And going there now, there is a lot. There's a very, very well-kept National Parks area, and there is a lot of RV parking area. And it's much more of a full-on campsite destination than it was in this. Yeah, things have changed since uh, 1976, 77, when this was made. In this movie, it's depicted as this unique landform that can be completely isolated by the government in order to create a secured landing site for the UFOs. You can't get away with that now just thanks to cameras, (laughs) but there's a whole lot of other stuff you've got to clear first that they wouldn't have had to. (laughs) And they play a little bit fast and loose with the terrain around it in terms of inventing a place to put this UFO landing station right next to the tower. I don't know that you can yeah, do that. There's nothing really that um, nice ma- and flat in that sense. No, not that close to the tower. No. It is it is rolling hills and then the only flat things on top, and you're not getting all that equipment up to the top <laughs> right now. And lots of jumbled uh, uh, rock and um, you know debris from the for- formation of the tower around the base of it. Not nice, broad, flat areas. Yeah, it almost implies that the government like dynamited a flat place that's just <laughs> terrifying. Oh, maybe. Eey. But yeah, they end up at um at Devil's Tower. I forget how uh she winds up there. Well, we do have while Neary has his escalating attempts to make a sculpture of he doesn't know what and it turns out to be Devil's Tower. Occasionally, we see back at her, her house, and this is even before Barry is uh, uh, is taken. It's when she's had her first sighting, and so has Barry, for that matter, her toddler. Uh, she is sketching. Oh yes, she's doing mountains, that. and she's. You can see this progression of sketches that she's created, and and I think some watercolors and things, and she's getting closer and closer to the silhouette of at least one face of Devil's Tower. And meanwhile, uh, little Barry on his little toy xylophone is picking out the five-note sequence that we know is associated with these alien visitations. And our government agents uh, take all of their data processing, figure out this sequence as notes, as hand signs, as all sorts of different, like, they break it down to everything, they break it down into numbers, and the numbers turn into GPS, into... uh, lat lawn coordinates and they go from there and i'm like wait well, a minute that's not enough well that's a little bit different the 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 notes are not the lat long oh that's not uh, I thought that's that. they get a, i think they were like connected to it but they start getting these signals they're down they're getting receiving them at the radio telescope and this radio telescope is 
getting these bursts of numbers. And it's a repeated sequence. And there we are translating these into normal decimal numbers. And it's like Holmes translator, whose day job used to be reading maps. Before before <laughs> I before I translated from English to French, I made maps. And he recognizes this these bursts of numbers, these inexplicable sets of numbers they're getting on the radio telescope. Those are latitudes and longitudes. I gotta say, I really do love the the get me a globe scene. That is the sort of like I, I don't know, I love that kind of cinematography where it's like, I know where there's one, and we just see this group of guys run into an office <laughs> and just literally kick a giant expensive globe out of a room and run it down a hall. Because the mission is more important than the decor, and I I'm like, like there's something about <laughs> this frenetic energy that is just absolutely, literally tearing through the the stoic, formal military setting, and I just love that for some reason. It's brilliantly done. Me too. I don't know why, but I I love that scene. You can kind of feel the energy there, where you know, these guys are. We're here at one a.m. getting trying to figure out what might be a legitimate alien contact and we need a globe and the director's got one in his office and he's not here getting this work done so i don't care if his door is locked oh yeah and it i just love that sort of moment it is it is very well done and it, it that is in some ways the progression for the military because we watch them very formally dissect things but as information comes faster they keep their technology and such but there's just a little bit of this buzzing energy that starts to infect their all their actions even as they're setting up this giant landing strip when they finally have a location there's a lot more of like wandering away from your post and staring in awe at what's happening that just the breakdown of the formality in the face of what's going on is brilliant. And that's, I think, a main tension in the middle of this movie is all within that official investigation storyline is that tension between science and security. The scientists who are approaching this with curiosity and wonder and yet serious rigor on the one hand, and the military who is seeing this as a security issue, a military operation we need to take control of this. We can't have civilians wandering into this. We don't know what it is yet. Uh, and sometimes that is just implicit in the way we see people addressing things and planning things. Eventually, it's made explicit with confrontations between Lancome and um, and the, the military uh, officer who's in charge. Because they, when they decide or they figure out that this is all going down in Devil's Tower, that's where whatever's broadcasting these signals is telling them to, to meet. They have this big operation to evacuate all the people from that whole area and, uh, and scare them into complying with the, uh, with the evacuation by drumming up a, a fake story about a military nerve gas leak from a train derailment. Oh, that's just reminding me of the the most terrifying act of humanity scene, which is the the cover-up moment when our 
hero air quote question mark our our protagonist protagonist better yeah our protagonist tries to finally drive into the area and his vehicle is swarmed by the military and they like have this little rat in a cage that they spray yeah, the little birds little canary in the coal mine a little but... canary in the coal mine but they literally watch we watch as they go around the truck and they spray it with a spray bottle of actual nerf gas and kill it just to be able to then lift it up into the sight of our protagonist and scare them with the the evidence yeah. that this is a real thing it's if, like if we had caught you a second later you'd be as dead as these birds kind of thing without saying anything which is like oh wow yeah that's like you know the opposite of the save the cat moment is the, the kill really, the bird moment kill the bird moment they absolutely do but we they they're and the fact that there is a lot of these people happening, apparently, we get to see the military getting frustrated with the fact that, like, as our scientists get set up, we keep having civilians show up in every direction and try to get here. And they wind up loading up trucks full of people that are all having versions of this same encounter. Right. And now most people who live in the area... They are believing the story, and they're trying to get out, but there's this trickle of people who are trying to get in. From all over, it seems. Yes. And as Lacombe points out when in his uh, argument with uh, the military, for every person who made it here, there must be dozens or more who had the same, who received the same communication and didn't make it this far. They were invited here by whatever it is that sent us the signal. They belong here more than we do. Yeah, which is really a weird phrase and a weird statement. It, it that that's one of those other chilling moments of like, what are we doing? <laughs> and eventually, like all of the people who did make it in, all the contactees who made it this far are gathered up in there. Again, the the cover story about the nerve gas is still being promoted, and they're being loaded onto helicopters to be um, removed. And our protagonists and like one other guy are the only people to get off the helicopter in time while others are distracted and, and try to get around the, uh, the tower to find out what's going on. And so we wind up watching as three people try to climb Devil's Tower. Free climb Devil's Tower, I guess. Well, I don't know. They never really show that they're climbing Devil's Tower because it's not as if the, uh, the, the contact is happening on top of the tower. Yeah. They're trying to go around the tower to get to like the other side of it because they, they, for some reason they have a feeling that that's where it's happening or they know it's happening somewhere. And it's not on this side where the preliminary primary military base is. They're, so they're at least, they're at least hiking and going up the elevation and not staying to trail. Right. Yeah. Okay. They are scrambling over this, you know, talus and other um, rough terrain around the tower. And meanwhile, the government realizes some folks got away, so they're dusting the whole, that whole side of the tower with uh, sleeping uh, chemicals. Just, just wild. But we, I really feel bad about the fact that we lose one of them. Yeah, He's, one of them does really get knocked out. Now they did ex when they when they started this. They were saying, "No, it's going to be sleeping chemicals." They'll wake up twelve hours later with a bad headache. So I don't know that we lose Larry with a capital L, but he doesn't make it as far as. And he uh, kind of slides two. down a little ways, though. I'm a little worried for Larry. You're 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 concerned about Larry's health and safety. Yes, I am. Oh well, 
Oh, well. We can talk more about that in our final questions. Okay, yes. <laughs> yes. But eventually, Roy and Jillian make it around the tower by like, and by this time it's uh, nightfall, and they see what's been built in this flat area next to the tower on this other face. And it is a a pretty impressive looking uh, military slash scientific base created in a relatively short time. Yeah, we've got a, a U-shaped uh, set of uh, arrangement of structures with center movable consoles that can move in and out and feed information back to each of these different bases and a large uh, landing strip out the middle. And I'm sorry, I want to build this in Minecraft and I don't know why. <laughs> oh, that would be awesome. There's something about this layout that just feels, this feels video game map-like in a way does. that so many other sets in movies never do. And I don't know why this one clicks like that. It's just regular enough and just fussy enough. It's got that right balance. It's like, I was, I swear I've, I've played this in a Splatfest on Splatoon. <laughs> Come on, what's going on here? And uh, and a central feature in this base, in addition to all the huge numbers of cameras and um, radar uh, antenna and such, is a giant musical synthesizer. And yes. A, a, a whiteboard wired into it, because they know this is how these, um, these aliens have communicated so far, with the exception of the number bursts, it's always been... Musical tones. And they are all set for when the aliens finally do arrive. And a small ship pulls up to the, the, the landing strip and is finally there. The contact is happening. And that is, that's a pretty kind of clever bit of progression because we get these three, maybe, you know, minivan-sized UFOs we've seen before all show up and eventually they respond to the the playing of musical tones to them and then they disappear. And everybody says, wow, that was amazing. This was so worth it. Wasn't that cool? We've actually contacted aliens and they think it's all over. And then... And that's not over. No. Because here comes the big ship. They were the scouts and then the mothership comes. And the mothership is this giant mushroom kind of thingy that I, like, every time it moves, which way is up and which way is down on its design flips for me. And I love that. And it's weird and terrifying and really reminiscent of the Upside Down City from Neon Genesis Evangelion. But I think that's a reverse <laughs> referencing. But still, there's something about this thing. Its design, this is one of the best alien-looking alien designs I've seen, because it it's just recognizable enough as something made by humans, because it's this physical props photographed and filmed in scale and then composited in and all that, and it's also just off perfectly enough and gets me every time. Yeah, the fact that it's not always obvious, it's rarely obvious which end is up, makes so much sense for something designed to fly most, spend most of its time in space. That yeah, you know, it does have that alienness, and these effects, by the way, in this movie, um, uh, Douglas Trumbull did these effects. Oh, known for movies like Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey, a really great sixties and seventies <sighs> and into the eighties um, uh, effects designer. How did I not recognize that? His stuff is 
his stuff has that that kind of style to it. Yeah, he does really innovative stuff with with lights and reflections. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of really good fine texture work. Yes, like he he'll dot. He'll dot the windows on a building that's going to be photographed in scale just to make sure they shine a little differently. And that's, it's important. And, and he really brings things to life the way he lights them. Oh yeah. But yeah, the, um, they were just getting started. This, it, it's in some ways it's kind of a false ending. Uh, although in the movie, we, thanks to the score and everything else, we know that there's more to come. There's this false ending of, oh, the, the scouts have gone away, and then we find out, no, the big one is on its way. And that's when we get the real contact. It's not, not just we played little jingles to one another and called it a communication. <laughs> There's something about that first encounter that reminds me of the meme that I've seen on Twitter of the two guys walking past. Same hat, same hat, and they just keep going. <laughs> it's like, there's not a lot to this communication at first, but then yes. the actual conversation oh, starts. Your favorite song, my favorite, favorite song. song. Yeah, been, oh, sweet. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Have a good day. But no, no, the, the, this thing comes down, and instead of these light, chirpy little tones we've got, it responds in the same note pattern but in complete baritone tuba, which is just, like, earth-shaking in perfect, like, comparison. We've got this, this tiny little synthesizer and bwomp. <laughs> and it's nice to see more detail about the way that this whole operation of the official, the official investigation and the official contact team was set up. Because they've got someone who's there playing the synthesizer, obviously extremely adept at this, but he's surrounded by musicologists and audio analysts figuring out what's happening here and, and reaching a consensus as to exactly what notes to hit when and such. And then in the back, they've got the computer scientists with their nice big blinking lights and spinning tape drive computers analyzing the sound. And eventually they have the computer software take over the playing of the synthesizer because the human players can't keep up with this communication that's happening. And a lot of great just reaction shot actor uh, acting on the part of like the guy playing the synthesizer. And I was reminded of the fact that uh, Francois Truffaut plays Lacombe. Yes. But much better known as a director. Oh, okay. I thought I recognized the name. One of his early movies is called Shoot the Piano Player. Wait, what? <laughs> I always think of that when I'm seeing that scene. <laughs> it's like, okay, it's... If the, if this did turn into the horror film, you would know where the first laser blast would <laughs> right. go then because of that reference. Yes. Or there's the, I think it's an Elton John album, Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player. You must be thinking that as well. Oh, yeah. But... They have their little conversation. It gets bigger. The, oh my goodness, it goes fast. It just ramps up in terms of speed there. And this is where the lines blur wonderfully between John Williams' score for the movie and the sound that's happening within the story. Mm -hmm. it, it, it really, it's all diegetic. Though. This communication between the humans and the alien, or the humans' computer and the aliens— turns into a John Williams score. And there's something very much when the big mothership starts speaking these tones really fast and in a much wider range. And it's like, oh, we're babies parodying the word we heard, aren't we? Oh, okay, we can deal with that. Let's deal with that. Let's learn fast, please. <laughs> I 
did find myself wondering, even when I first saw this when I was 12. So the aliens communicate with sound, but sound is extremely dependent upon our atmosphere. Um, does this mean that, A, the filmmakers didn't really think about that? Does it mean that the aliens were attracted to us because we evolved on a similar planet to them? Does it mean Jacques Vallée is right and the aliens are us from the future or from another dimension? Well, this gets to lead into the fact that after we've had our little conversation, there's a big dramatic pause and the doors open. Yes. And we get a bunch of the people that they took. Yeah. Remember those airplanes? They had pilots. They had pilots. The pilots come back very confused and not a day older than they were when they disappeared in 1945. There's a lot of come with me for debriefing. <laughs> yes. Which that's, and then it starts with the pilots and then it starts with all the other people. Lots of people from, from around the world, mm-hmm. of all different types, including Barry, the baby, the Barry's kid. back. Barry's back. And of course, Jillian, this was her goal. She's got Barry. And Barry is just very chill about everything. It's like, oh, I got to play. Yeah. Thanks for picking me up from my friend's house, Mom. Yep. <laughs> but we get to see the aliens then, or at least the first of the three types we see. Yeah, there are three types, right? There's the face hugger, there's the chest burster, and then there's the big guy, right? <laughs> Different film. Oh, okay. We haven't gotten to that one <laughs> Not yet. that one yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. I'm sorry. You were saying three types of aliens. We get to see the first one, which is this very spindly, I don't know why my head jumps to this, but Kermit the Frog proportioned thing. Yeah, it is very Muppet-like. Muppety the with the spindly arms But are. we get to get absolute proof. They've got atmosphere enough for sound communication, <laughs> and we have 1G gravity uh, stable, uh, chiral, since they've got hand appendages, bipeds. We have got humanoid. This is absolutely uncertain until this point, and that's kind of really impressive compared to, like, all the other things it could be thanks to space, I guess. I guess. I might have to come back to that as we talk about more alien types. Okay. I thought that might be a discussion point, but... (laughs) But we see the one spindly alien, and we get all the humans coming back. Kind of the doorman. Yeah. And then we get a whole bunch... Of the little ones, the little berries. Yes. Which, I mean, the the rest of them really, between the, between the tonal noises, their, their weird clumping crowd nature as they wander around, and their very eager nature of touching anything that then is put in front of them, there's something very children's choir before the show about them in my head, and I don't know why that's the way my mind goes, but... It has that kind of, they're as excited to find out about us more. And, and I think that Spielberg is very clear, very explicit in the way he cuts back and forth between our human toddler Barry and these little aliens. These little aliens are sized and shaped like Barry. Yeah. Barry was the model for creating these. Oh, that, I think, is... I mean, you could say, well, they wanted Barry because he seemed the most like their primary crew, which are the little guys. But it seemed to me, I always thought, they kidnapped Barry, studied him, and used him as a model for these 
entities that they essentially created because it made sense. Oh, humans relate to these little things. Let's make some of those so the humans will relate to them. I never considered that. (laughs) That's a whole other type of fascinating and terrifying. I just assumed that's what they were like. And if that's true of, if I'm right about the little guys, the little berries are in fact little berries. Are the either of the other two alien forms we see the quote unquote true form, or are they all something that was created as a way to relate to bipedal oxygen breathing life on a rocky, watery planet? I started thinking that there were multiple different types of aliens piloting one ship, which implies. Did one of them go out and talk to the second, and they joined them? And then those two found the third, and they joined them? And we're being invited to join this group? Is this a little bit more of a a galactic federation of planets that would then go out and explore other places and the like? Maybe? Okay, are they on Earth to explore us because we're a strange new world? Exactly. Okay. That's the sort of thing Got I started it. to wonder. There might be I mean you could you could see that being the case as well, but that's yeah, a whole other type of narrative. I I could see that being the case. And and maybe I'm reading maybe Spielberg isn't as clear as I think he is about the little berries and, and what they are shaped like. But I like your interpretation as well, because either of those could be the way this goes, and that's very clearly not clear and that's perfect in that sense and of all three the little berries are the least they they have the least agency they do seem to be kind of fumbling around and they're almost like little probes uh as opposed to something that is really paying attention to its environment and they certainly don't initiate any communication yeah but that brings us to the third kind of alien that we see after all of the humans have been um uh, have have left the the alien ship, and I think is it after Roy? I didn't think Wait. it was. A, was it? After? Oh, that's a, he, I guess he goes at the very end. He goes at the very okay. end. But yeah, we have an, a third kind of alien who's in some ways the most human-like, isn't it? Yeah, because it's the it's almost the classic gray. Yeah, ways. think of the cra- classic gray, lightened and softened to be friendlier and less Whitley Strieber scary. Yeah, no, I'm not saying Whitley Strieber is scary. <laughs> I don't know Whitley Strieber. The kind of aliens in his books are scarier than this guy is. What? I I don't want to get a call from Whitley Strieber defending himself. I'm sure he's a fine guy. I wanted to make that clear. Oh, but this one has, we get a clearer view of its model because it has the interaction moment, I think. Or is that the, is that Lanky? Uh, No, it's the the guy at the end. It's the guy at the end. Yeah. Because he... Does the hand signs that we'd figured out for the tones, which kind of like is the fact that they responded to the tones is you can communicate. The fact that the that it gets our hand sign versions so fast and responds in kind is like, yeah, you're chill, dude. Like, like, <laughs> like it's the difference between like you can talk and we accept you, and that's very different. And I like that. Yep, I admit. The whole meeting the aliens thing isn't as exciting for me. Yeah. The film almost ends for me when the mothership responds, and the rest of it's just a really long ending that doesn't add as much for me. You're right. It doesn't need all those loose ends tied up. I suppose 
I might think that in in hindsight, I don't remember thinking, well, this wasn't really necessary when I was 12. It was all amazing. Now that I look at it, I'd almost rather the aliens stay weirder and more alien and we never see them, except maybe the little berries. Yeah, the the fact that galactic probability gave us things that didn't collapse under one G of gravity <laughs> compared to the rest of all the planets out there that could be like that that messes with me and maybe that's cuz I like too much other science fiction that has pointed that out but it's it's that sort of thing that gets me then eh. and it's a kind of ending that very much becomes a classic Spielberg ending kind of thing into the 80s when you get into movies like ET Yes. And it becomes more about heartwarming alien encounters. We'll put aside the um, Indiana Jones movies for a moment, which were not so much about heartwarming alien encounters. How warm is a heart when it's no longer in the chest cavity? <laughs> Let's not, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, it, that really did seem like the, the Spielberg ending as that became known later. Oh, absolutely. And we get the final decision moment or the final real action of our protagonist, which is being noticed by all the military people and like confirmed like, okay, yeah, you're one of the people they talked to get over here. Because meanwhile, we have seen during all the military and the official investigation, official response preparations, there was this squad of super fit, super serious, super professional military-looking guys in red jumpsuits and dark sunglasses. And clearly, these were the guys being trained as the contact team, the liaison team. If anybody has to go somewhere, these are the guys who are trained and prepared for it. Oh, yeah. Put them in red jumpsuits, and they'll be ready to go down to whatever. And they essentially add Roy Neary to this group at the last minute. Because he was invited by the aliens, and somebody eventually um, listened to Lacombe's point about that. And it's reinforced when all of them are presented in front, and the aliens just go over and grab him and bring him in. Yeah, they they chose him out of that group. Mm -hmm. And earlier, by the way, just to show that she wasn't left out, there's this kind of really good exchange, I think, between Roy and Jillian, where... She is making it clear she came here to get her son. She's not going farther, and he has to go farther. Different responses, different motivations, and different outcomes, but uh, but they each made a choice. And yeah, he eventually, out of all the the candidates, he's the one selected by the aliens. He smiles when they come over to them. Oh, is that the— Everyone else— stays stoic and ready and is prepped, and he looks at them, breaks rank, and smiles. And they immediately pick him then. Oh, I never made that connection. He's the one who sees it as a meeting and uh, an adventure, as opposed to the group that saw it as a military assignment. Yeah, the, the rest of them, it's a mission. For him, it's a meeting, and they, they choose him. And there's like this, oh yeah, that's our guy. And they know what smiles are because we see the the third alien type smile at the very end. Yeah, they, that we don't have anything else. The alien just smiles or bears its teeth at us. I mean, I don't know, but I think it's I think it's a I smile. think it's a smile. Yeah. I, I think that that puppet definitely was so. had a smile function. I think 
But yeah, and then the movie ends with like watching the mothership float away. Yep. Which is really peaceful and really great second chance to look at the model in high detail, but it's just kind of there. And I don't know, it It almost doesn't end because of how that leaves off in some weird way. I guess they, they want to get more mileage out of these models and that um, Trumbull cinematography. But you're right, it's just we, we see the mothership drifting off into space over the end credits. And, um, but at the very end there, that's one of the, that's if probably the most important difference in the special edition. Oh. Was the fact in the special edition, we follow Neri into the mothership. And we get a few seconds of him looking up and around in amazement. And it's essentially, he's in a incredibly vast 80s shopping mall in terms of the structure and the lights and everything else. Ah, dang it. <laughs> it's not that impressive, but it allowed the studio when they were re-releasing the movie as the special edition to put in all the promotions. You'll finally see what's inside the alien ship. Yeah. It, it's a food court. It wasn't that interesting, <laughs> but you you didn't lie on the on the poster, so I guess uh, you got your money's worth. And I understand oh, well. Spielberg didn't care for that either. It was just a studio thing. But and I didn't think that that was uh, was any. It the movie didn't benefit from that. The movie I think was better not seeing what happened after Neri crosses that threshold. And as you were saying, there are other things the movie might have benefited from not showing us compared to what it did show us. Yeah, but it is. I think it's a very well-structured movie. It's oh, yeah. A pretty well-paced movie, although, again, I think the pacing is better in the original cut. But it's it shows how well Spielberg can put things together. It's It's a crafted movie in that sense. It is constructed very carefully because of how all these things are interspliced and such. And I say you can move the pieces around, but that's because each piece feels intact. And then it's a building force watching these threads weave in and out, not narratively, but towards the same goal until they start to intertwine. This might have been the first movie that I saw where I sort of was aware while I was watching it that a person or a team of people like put this together. I kind of knew that about Star Wars, which I saw a few months earlier, the same year. But I was primarily thinking about the storytelling and the story that this guy named George Lucas, who I'd read about in the magazines, was telling in this movie. In Close Encounters, I was thinking about the fact that everybody talks about this movie director, Steven Spielberg, who made this movie and made this other movie called Jaws. And I started thinking of it not just in terms of storytelling, but in terms of how does somebody put a movie together in order to tell stories? And that was a, that was kind of a revelation to me that something is carefully assembled for the purpose of that story. This is a movie where in those ending scenes, the presence of movie cameras in the shot filmed with a movie camera is notable in that weird way. And it has that kind of deconstructive aspect because you are, see people building and building to this thing. And it makes you also think that too. And it's well done in in getting to show that and getting you to think that because it's 
a piece of brilliantly made art that makes you think these things and can really help on that. I'm, I'm with you on this is what I'm saying. And you know, the way you phrased that has got me thinking of things I hadn't really thought before, but what's a consistent theme in the movie itself, in the story itself is people having a, a profound experience and attempting to use art to process and make sense of that experience, be the art sculpture or drawing or picking out a tune on a toy xylophone. They're attempting to use art to process a profound metaphysical experience. Exactly. I'm like, this is, I, that's one of those cool parts of it, this whole thing. Cause it's, it's, it's art about art in that sense. I like that. I never, I never thought of it in those terms with the content of the movie, but that's great. Sounds like we're getting to our final questions though. I think so. I think so. So, um, screen or no screen screen. Yeah. Screen screen, uh, screen the original or screen the director's cut, but I think I'm with you. Don't screen the special. Yeah. I, I, and like I said, we'll have to rewatch at least the, the, uh, the original theatrical cut and decide which of those we like better. But I, I think that if there's one to skip, it's the quote-unquote special edition. So, the bigger question, revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Uh, I'm going to nix reboot immediately. Because reboot is weird. Rebooting it not set when it's set becomes a different film too much there's something distinct about the technological level that allows for some of the narrative beats like being able to completely block off devil's tower that i don't think you can get away with in other scenarios and there's a lot of other films about alien encounters and they all work their own different things so you reboot this and change too much and it's just a different film and I don't know if it keeps the same things that make this unique then. So I don't think reboot really works at all. I think you're right about that. It's, um, it, it has to change too much to be a reboot if it, um, if it's going to be set the present day, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, remember that pin I dropped earlier in this conversation? Yes. I'd like you to pull that out because I've got one of my wild revival ideas. Oh, what's that? An entire other film about a race or gr or group of races of aliens who have built this civilization who are suddenly besieged from this planet that they'd contacted and then quarantined thanks to its actions as this other place goes absolutely crazy. And in the end, it turns out it's because this one kid from this family is really mad at this dad of his that left on an alien spaceship years ago and has led a revolt against these aliens to get him back and just find this guy because this main character is so annoying. He could be the entire motivation for his son of a character who got invested in this and was just gung ho about everything to become a terrifying villain of revenge. And I don't know why this came to mind so clearly at one point for me, but there's something of just like the absolute <laughs> surprise sequel twist version of 
just steamrolling the positivity for the sake of getting it back at this one guy. I don't know why I went there. <laughs> I could even see that storyline where the aliens never show up. Yeah. But the Earth is torn by this war, one faction led by the son of Roy Neary, and one faction run by uh, Barry, yes! who's grown up, and he's a pro-alien. He wants to reach out to them. He wants to signal them. He's hoping they'll come back. And these are the two human factions destroying the world between them. We've been trying to call back the aliens ever since they showed up once. And then the big twist is one of the two leaders just absolutely turning on the entire project. (laughs) Where is my dad? (laughs) This, these work. And it's, it's weird that this upbeat positive story leads to such this strangely dark potential when you try to make anything more from it from the way i i feel we've we're left i don't know why that sounds very specifically like an anime plot it does it? it does it it really does i kind of want that but i'm gonna say rest in peace because i don't think you have to do that with this property specifically yeah so I agree with you about um, uh, a reboot really isn't necessary or, and, and wouldn't work very well. Uh, I like your idea of a revival, but technically there are other possibilities in our definition of revival, which is something that takes place in the same continuity as the original, be it a sequel or a prequel. Um, there's that great uh, – the, the fact that all these different people converged after their contacts – converged on Devil's Tower and Lacombe pointing out that, you know, for everyone who made it this far, there are dozens or hundreds who didn't. Could they have interesting stories? What's Larry's story? Oh, yeah. What's Larry's story before we meet him? And what happens to Larry afterward? Um, no, I, I don't know. That I, no, I kind of <laughs> I kind of like that. Not a terribly interesting, not, not enough for a movie there, but. It, there is a really good miniseries rebooty idea there of individual stories of all the different people instead of twisting all these narratives together tell each one individually tell more of them and let them all give you pieces of information that you get to combine together having seen them all once again it's kind of a different structure then but it has that tone to it that you could pull from it yeah i think in the end though i'm gonna say rest in peace we don't we don't need any of these um side stories or revivals or even the amazing sequel you came up with. Um, and we don't need a reboot. So I'm going to say this is what it is and it's, it's, it should be watched, but it, uh, it should rest in peace. So with that all being said, dad, if people want to send five tones and try to communicate with you, where can they find you online? Oh, you can find me uh, most places as by Matthew Porter. So by Matthew you'll find me and, and links to uh, what I'm doing online. You can also find me on Twitter as by Matthew Porter or on Twitch uh, at by Matthew Porter. Um, you know, look for me under that name and you'll probably find me. And Ian, where can people find you? I'm most places as item crafting, be that Twitter or YouTube or Twitch. I'm item crafting live. And you can find the podcast online. You can find it, uh, us on Twitter at uh, IMMPcast. And you can find us at the website, immproject.com. That's where you'll find all of our back episodes, uh, including Project UFO, TV's response to Close Encounters. And you'll find uh, links to our shop, a link to our Patreon, a link to our Discord. We'd love to hear from you uh, in any of these places. Uh, we'd love to hear you from you on the contacts page on the website, too. 
Uh, what did you think of this movie? What did you think of it as a, a follow-up to Jaws from Spielberg? What's your favorite medium to be able to depict Devil's Tower? <laughs> and um, and if you do uh, reach out to us, if you do write to us, uh, let us know if it's okay to read your communication in the podcast. And there will be more podcasts. We will be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of media from the 20th century. And in the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>